Hi, I'm Willow Fiddler. I'll be your guest host for a few days. You're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. I'm a staff reporter at The Globe. I'm also an Anishinaabe from Sandy Lake First Nation, which is a community in Treaty 5 in Northwestern Ontario. For 146 years, the Crown has been paying members of 23 First Nations $4 per year for the use and occupation of a huge part of Northern Ontario, which is about two-thirds of the province. That's because of two treaty agreements between First Nations and the Crown. The treaties promise to share the land's wealth for everyone's benefit. But Ontario's highest court recently ruled that those few dollars violate the original intent and spirit of the treaties. There's an understanding that there would be sharing of resource wealth that was created from the development of these Indigenous lands that were shared uh, by the Indigenous peoples. That's Sarah Mainville. She's Anishinaabe from Treaty Number 3 and a lawyer and partner at Ultheus Clear Townshend in Toronto, where she represents First Nations as legal counsel. She'll explain why these agreements ended up in court in the first place and what the ruling could mean for future treaty negotiations. This is The Decibel. Buju, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. What's the amount of compensation right now for the First Nations in, the, in these treaties? Uh, right now, um, people like my wife, who's from Mississauga First Nation, get a $4 annuity every year uh, for sharing their treaty territory. And, and what are the names of the, the two treaties that we're talking about? So because the treaty commissioner's last name was Robinson, they're called the Robinson Superior and the Robinson Huron Treaties. So how is it that the Canadian government has been able to pay the same $4 annuity since 1875? I mean, that's 146 years. It's because there hasn't been um, an understanding that treaties have been legal documents since um, 1982, since our treaties are constitutionally protected. And so these were seen as Maybe moral obligations, but not seen. These obligations in treaties haven't been really seen as legal obligations. And so because crown governments, the federal government in particular, have all the power and control, they can just unilaterally decide that it stays $4, you know, for as long as, you know, they wanted to. Um, now that since 1982, Section 35 is part of the Constitution, our, our um, Aboriginal treaty rights are recognized and affirmed, um, we can bring these legal claims to court. Right. And do we know how much money, I mean, the government is making off off the land in these treaties? There have been discussions. So there was a conversation from 2007 to about 2012 uh, with the Liberal government of the day about resource revenue and sharing. And we talked about what is in that basket. What are we sharing? Uh, is it hydro revenues? Is it... Is it just stumpage fees? It's, is it something more talking about, you know, how much the Ministry of Finance uh, does collect uh, from resource development across Ontario? It was disputed, you know, how big that basket was. You know, how much does Niagara Falls make, for example, <laughs> for the province of Ontario? And how do you share that with the Indigenous peoples in Ontario? I know I've, I've seen in the media, the litigation lawyer for the superior plaintiffs feels like this is, we're talking billions of dollars. Um, how long have, have First Nations been fighting this? 
Well, probably since 1850, the annuity um, was less than $4 uh, until uh, the federal government decided in 1875 to raise the annuity to $4, as the Crown has often done. They read the treaty text very literally. For example, um, in my treaty in Treaty 3, we get a basically a Canada revenue um, check for $250 because uh, in the treaty we were promised a suit as a member of Chief and Council, and we get that check every three years as per what the tax is. So the Crown takes these obligations very literally, and the, so they looked at the $4 is potentially all uh, that they had to were obliged to uh, pay as far as an annuity. Right. And you're, you're a former chief of your community. Um, so you yes. would have received the suit or the money for the, the new suit. So um, you mentioned in your community, it's $5 where I'm from. Uh, it's also $5 we get each year. Can you describe mm-hmm. how these um, $4 or $5 annuity payments actually happen on the ground? So uh, Canada sends a delegation out uh, to give the annuity payments uh, to communities. And so there's a schedule that's made that starts uh, likely in June and it takes place throughout the summer where this delegation goes to community to give out the annuity. There's generally a line. You go there because there's, you know, a hundred to, you know, in some communities, my community has uh, 2,800 people. You stand in line and you wait to get your uh, four or five dollars. These used to be bigger events because like even when I was growing up as a kid, getting $5, you know, you could buy things with $5 uh, in the 1970s. Um, but it's less of an event for a lot of communities because, you know, making your way uh, to stand in line for $4 is really not that worthwhile. Um, and it's quite a symbolic event, too. I mean, RCMP are, are, are even present, yes. right? Yeah, there's a bit of that. Like my community, um, and I think other communities do this as well, we actually, because it is meaningful for our kids to be part, you know, to understand that they are treaty rights beneficiaries, um, that we actually have a lot of kids events going on. We actually have treaty day festivities around that. And so the kids, you know, get to play games and things like that. So there's the other communities that do that, like treaty days. Uh, in Kuchiching is is a pretty big thing. Yeah, same in my community. It's a uh, usually a three day event, and okay. uh, yeah, I've been present for for it many times, and uh, quite interesting to see you know the RCMP officers there. And I mean, back then they would have been called Indian agents. They're uh, you know mm-hmm. today representatives from the Ministry of Indigenous Services. Um, but just quite interesting yeah. to see how that all plays out and, and how it's still something that the communities, I mean, it, they turn it into a celebration, right? It's something to be proud of, like our, our treaties. I've often heard people, you know, talking about our treaties uh, being some sort of, um, you know, we were bamboozled by the crown. I think the 1850 treaty, my treaty, like we're actually proud of the negotiations that we did that led to the treaty. It's just the crown taking everything so literally and less than symbolically, I think is, is one, of the, one of the reasons why we find our relationship is more in court than it is actually in celebrations like treaty days.
Let's rewind all the way back to 1850. What are the two treaties that we're talking about here? So these are treaties made with uh, Great Britain. Uh, so these are um, important treaties because uh, there is activity that's trying to happen along the North Shore of Lake Superior and Lake Huron. And um, Indigenous peoples are complaining that there was promises made in 1763 that um, there would be no activity on Indigenous lands until an agreement was made between, with the Crown. An investigation was happened in 1849. It was called the Vidal and Anderson Commission, uh, just to see what sort of the foundation of a treaty could look like. There was uh, some mining activity that was happening around Bruce Mines, Ontario, near Sault Ste. Marie. There was a, a court hearing and uh, there was a discussion that was had with chiefs about having, you know, to be more assertive and to bring, um, I think there was like a hundred Anishinaabe that went to stop the mining activity. The chiefs were brought to uh, Toronto, potentially put in jail. And uh, there's a discussion that was happened with a person that was named uh, William B. Robinson, who was a former fur trader. Uh, the chiefs knew him and uh, he was suggested as the treaty commissioner uh, to begin treaty discussions in 1850. And what can you tell, tell us, what was the original uh, agreement between the First Nations and the Crown at that time? There was a modest sum that was paid at the time of 1850, but there was an augmentation clause in the treaty that promised and committed that the Crown would pay a share of the resource revenues uh, as the lands uh, north of Lake Superior and north of Lake Huron would be developed. What is an augmentation clause that you talk about? Well, it's it's very particular to these two treaties. So you won't see it in, in the numbered treaties, but it was an innovation in 1850 because of the fact that they knew that Indigenous peoples um, were all related and we know each other and there is some understanding of the treaties in southern Ontario where there were larger sums that were paid to share the lands uh, in southern Ontario. And um, I think we all know that the southern Ontario lands were more productive for um, development of the day, which was, you know, forestry, mining and agriculture. So... The treaty commissioners knew that, knew that the Indigenous peoples would have higher expectations for compensation. And uh, so the augmentation clause was really, really crucial for both treaty partners to make a deal in 1850, but a deal that would um, mean a long-standing relationship. As they say in the treaties, as long, as long as the sun shines, the grasses grow and the rivers flow. Can you tell us a bit about the land in question? Where is it? I mean, you mentioned Lake Superior and Lake Huron, but where is it? And can you describe the area? Well, I think uh, many of us, we've done um, checks through the vast uh, territory that is now the province of Ontario. And you go through places like um, North Bay, Sudbury, Sault Ste. Marie, to Thunder Bay in that um, very... Um, beautiful summer drive or treacherous winter drive between Sault Ste. Marie and Thunder Bay. And that's all um, to the north is all was all indigenous land. You know, there's lots of forestry potential for sure, but it wasn't really and it still isn't not that well known as agricultural productive lands. So lands for settlement, it was at, in 1850, it wasn't really that clear um, that that would be settled land, that there would be cities that would come up you know, within 146 years afterwards. So how did this end up in court? What is the dispute? 
So um, the augmentation clause itself, there's a understanding that there would be sharing of resource wealth that was created from the development of these Indigenous lands that were shared uh, by the Indigenous peoples. And so the augmentation clause uh, was, it, it was something that it was seen that courts would understand. It's about compensation, right? It's about um, money. It's about resources. So it's um, unlike a lot of other treaty relationship kind of uh, disputes, this one was clearly something that the court was capable of helping and uh, giving some tools for both of the parties to come up with a satisfactory settlement of the issue of what that augmentation clause means today. So what happens next? Uh, is this something that's going to go to the Supreme Court of Canada? Um, I hope not. I, th- I think that throughout the litigation, the plaintiffs have always wanted to resolve this at a Crown First Nation negotiation table. Um, these are things that can be sorted out uh, through experts, economists and other folks uh, sitting at a table working together to come up with uh, a meaningful settlement for the First Nations. There potentially is a reason for uh, this this case to go to the Supreme Court of Canada because there is a, a split in the decision about the treaty interpretation and whether or not the uh, trial judge made a treaty interpretation error. Two of the Court of Appeal judges um, believed that there was uh, an error that was unreasonable in her judgment around the, uh, she used the term called fair share, which was rejected by the court as a whole, that the Anishinaabe and uh, the treaty beneficiaries should get a fair share of the resource revenue. That was um, basically manufacturing uh, terminology. But that type of treaty interpretation issue could go to the Supreme Court of Canada and could resolve um, how... uh, appeals could reveal trial decisions given the nature of treaty litigation and how costly, expensive, and how much time it takes to get a treaty properly in court and framed in court and how important it is to protect that original decision. As long as that trial judge doesn't make any any errors, uh, it could resonate across the country for treaty rights holders, not just uh, in Ontario, but across the country. Outside of court, then, what's the better way to deal with these disputes? There was a treaty council. We, we talk about it in Indigenous lawmaking as a council fire. So there was a council fire, um, a really important council fire lit at Niagara Falls in 1764 that established the original treaty relationship, the nation-to-nation relationship between Indigenous peoples and um, what would become Canada. At the time, it was Great Britain. And this 1850 council fire that was lit to come up with a solution to living together forever in uh, the 1850s treaties. But written texts, you know, written texts, they're thought of potentially as living trees, but you do actually have to come back. And uh, we have this uh, treaty understanding of coming back and renewing relationships in Indigenous treaties, and that's really what has to happen. Call it a council fire, call it a treaty council, but that's where you really renew and refresh and revitalize of how we can live peacefully together, side by side, and uh, how we can both benefit from sharing our lands. Because things change, times have changed. There's, you know, there's now cities, vibrant cities in these regions, and there are, you know, settlements, and there's other folks, and there's third parties. And so you do have to um, be mindful of all those contexts in order to make sure that this is a living, breathing relationship that will 
foster regional development in a way that benefits both parties. Right. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us and, and sharing your insights and, and uh, knowledge and expertise on, on this really important topic. I appreciate your presence with us today. Miigwech, Willow. It's always nice talking to you. Miigwech. That's it for today. I'm Willow Fiddler. Our producers are Madeline White and Cheryl Sutherland. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer. Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks to our guest, Sarah Mainville. You can find her on Twitter at Inakanagawan. That's I-N-A-K-O-N-I-G-A-A-W-I-N. Email us at thedecibel at globeandmail.com. If you want to reach me, I'm on Twitter at Willow Fiddler. If you haven't already, hit that follow button wherever you're listening so you never miss an episode. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.